Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Richard, we're living in kind of a scary, dark time right now. I'm a journalist and something of a news junkie, and I don't read the newspaper or listen to the news on the radio nearly as much as, as I once did because of so much nastiness, negativity, and hopelessness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm still very much involved with the website formerly known as Twitter, and Sometimes I just have to turn it off. So today we're going to focus not on dreary current events, but on the future and what kind of future world we might have. That means we're going to talk about optimism and why we need more of it. And here's a good reason for you and me to be upbeat, Jim. This is our 400th podcast. Incredible. But we're not looking back. Instead, on to the future with James Pethokoukas. If you cannot imagine or have someone present a a plausible imagining of a better tomorrow, then why should we take any risks today? There will be failures. Failure is part of taking any risk. It's part of a capitalist economy. And if you're not seeing failures, then you're probably not taking big enough, you know, big enough risk or taking a big enough swing at the plate. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? What do you think the future will hold? Will things get better or worse? So many of us have a fearful, even dystopian view of what's to come, so it's refreshing to encounter the ideas of an optimist, James Pethokoukas, who writes faster, please, a newsletter that discusses creating a better world through technological innovation, economic growth, and what he calls a pro-progress culture. James is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's the author of a really fun new book called The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. Right now, with the way the world is, it's, it may be hard to imagine a brighter future. Yeah, and you know, in our lifetimes, Richard, we've kind of pivoted from the the sort of go-go, optimistic days of uh, the Apollo Project and 
sort of science fiction stories we grew up in to a, a darker, more dystopian sense of the future, both in our view of reality and, and the world we live, but also in our fiction. Before we play our interview, Jim, just talk for a moment about the Apollo Project, because I think a number of listeners might have forgotten what it was, and, and we mentioned this in our conversation. From, uh, I believe it was 1962 when President Kennedy issued his challenge that we would reach the moon by the end of the decade, the U.S. poured enormous resources and brain power into the uh, the space program that led from, from Mercury to the Gemini rockets to the Apollo rockets, the biggest rockets that had ever been built, that ultimately landed humans on the moon. And uh, so the last uh, footprints on the moon were 1972. And the spirit of that time is really something to remember, the sense that, wow, we made it to the moon. So probably in another 20 years, we'll be on Mars. We'll have space stations and people will be taking vacations in orbit. And But that period of optimism took a turn, a darker turn in the 70s, when uh, the economy kind of soured, we maybe couldn't continue the level of investment we'd put into that moon program, and optimism declined markedly. We were living in England at the time of the Apollo 11 launch. I remember my dad, who was an engineer and loved technology and the space program, woke us up for that launch. It was 4.30 in the morning UK time, and uh, there was a lot of excitement about this launch, not just in America, but around the world. So let's go to our interview with Jim Pathakoukas, who joined us from Washington, D.C., and Jim Meggs, you started with a personal question about our guest's love of science fiction, something you share. Uh, when did you first get interested in science fiction? When did you fall in love with this way of looking at the world? Uh, probably as a kid watching reruns of the uh, original Star Trek. Uh, you know, I loved that. I loved a lot of sort of the, uh, I guess now the, you would probably call it softer science fiction of like Ray Bradbury. I was a big Ray Bradbury fan. I got into it and clearly it's uh, had a big effect on me to this very day. And not just this sort of serious or intellectual end of science fiction, but also some of the fun stuff like the uh, 60s cartoon, The Jetsons. Yeah, listen, I think all that stuff is actually uh, some stuff which is super serious, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, a film which you know was trying to say something, versus a cartoon like The Jetsons. Especially all that stuff from the 1960s had something to say that, that a lot of media, whether it's meant seriously or not, in science fiction, doesn't say very much anymore. And I think them not saying it is important. I, I just don't think it's entertainment. I think it influences how we think about the future and how we think about the future influences the decisions we make right now in the present. Well, Jim and I are both baby boom kids. And when we grew up, many visions of the future in popular entertainment were pretty optimistic Tell us a little bit more about the sci-fi world we were promised. It was about a future where humanity was in complete control of the world around it and off-world uh, as well. 
you know, we we dominated the bottom of the ocean. Not, you know, there were bubble cities underwater. We could tap unlimited amounts of power to do whatever we want, and we dominated really the solar system. But then again, we started seeing a lot of like super optimism again in the late 90s. Still probably not as much in film, but certainly people went through the tech boom back then with the internet, saw lots of uh, optimism that we were approaching the singularity, that all those postponed dreams from the 60s, that we would certainly see them uh, in the 21st century. So that was a bit of a shorter period, but one where you also saw, where you also saw those themes, which is very different from the period between and since, which is tends to be you know quite dystopian. Almost every single thing Hollywood puts out uh, today about the future, which is either you know we're going to live on a charred planet. You know, the zombies will be chasing us, uh, or perhaps a combination of the two. Some of those forecasts from the from the 60s and the 50s seem kind of nutty. But you say that there's a certain, I don't know, strength, cultural strength in, in being more optimistic and, and considering the possibility that the future could be better rather than some doom-laden dystopia. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case, that if you cannot imagine or have someone present a, a plausible imagining of a better tomorrow, then why should we take any risks today? We see, we see it as well with AI. If all we can imagine is AI taking all our jobs, only enriching a slice of the population, or somehow you know killing us, well, why, why heavens would we want to do anything. We should, of course, not just temporarily pause AI development, we should permanently pause uh, AI development or make it so heavily regulated that perhaps it really wouldn't be much different. So there were some of those sort of dreams of the past, which maybe to us seem science fictional, but they certainly did not seem science fictional uh, then. You had legitimate, you know, think tanks with close government ties imagining everything from, you know, uh, you know, sentient robots to, uh, you know, space, you know, basically warp engines. But a lot of those things we now know were possible. We now we now know it's probably, you can do nuclear fusion. We still have to figure out if we can do it economically, but we know you can do a fusion reaction here on Earth. We know you can have computers maybe do far more than we imagined a year ago. We know you can do very precise genetic editing. Things which they imagined a half century ago that we're getting now, but a big part of my case is that everything you're seeing in the news from reusable rockets by SpaceX or large language models or CRISPR, that that is stuff we could have had decades ago and heaven knows where we'd be today. So let's talk a little bit about that boom period. You know, you mentioned underwater cities. I was a little kid, went to the 1964 World's Fair and saw that GM Futurama exhibit with, you know, this incredible world that, that they saw not 50 years off, but, you know, 20 or 30 years off. Uh, but it wasn't just culture. It was also something was going on in the economy. There, there was a productivity growth. There was economic growth. Tell us a little bit about what the economy from, say, the late 50s to the early 70s was really like. We had very rapid growth, economic growth. We had very rapid productivity growth, output per worker, very, very high. And when people at the time looked at those, they figured like that we had somehow solved the problem. That there had been that we were on such a never-ending sort of moving sidewalk 
of, of tech progress, driving productivity, driving the economy, that it was perfectly reasonable to assume that that was going to continue, probably accelerate, which is one reason why in the 60s, and this may seem similar today, you, had, you, you, you did have a bit of a panic about robots taking all the jobs. They really they saw also that things were happening very quickly, and there were some folks who were worried about it. You have a use a formula in the book to describe these two main kind of worldviews with regard to the future, but also to how we should uh, orient ourselves as a society towards questions of risk and, and abundance. And you base it on an obscure uh, 70s futurist named <laughs> F.M. Esfandiar, who I had not heard about before I read your book. But he, he thought the old right-wing and left-wing political divide labels were obsolete, and he came up with he, what, what he called calls upwing and downwing. So upwing is sort of a positive, optimistic orientation to the future that's willing to take risks, sort of the Apollo era uh, kind of worldview. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I really like the, 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 Apollo, the, the Apollo worldview because when President Kennedy announced that we were going to the moon, in that speech he said, like, there are a lot of problems we have to solve. There are things we still need to do that we don't know how to do today, but we but you know, we need to have confidence we'll figure them out. So I think at the core of sort of the upwing thinking uh, is the belief that we can build tools to solve problems, that we have the capability, we have enough wisdom, and we are have enough sort of risk-taking verve to do that. You can be a Democrat, you can be a Republican. You know, your exact formula, policy prescriptions may, may differ, but I think if you put, you know, some upwing folks on the left and upwing folks on the right together, they can come up with like a set of ideas they both agree on. But of course, as can the downwing people on the left and right who can come up with reasons why we shouldn't do any of that stuff. The money would be better spent here. Uh, it's going to cause too much disruption in people's lives and families and communities. Uh, these are people who don't like disruption, who worry that the risks just aren't worth it. You, you can see those on the left and the right, people who are very, very worried about the disruptive aspects of trade, very worried about the disruptive aspects uh, of immigration, who just think that technology is probably only going to benefit a small slice of the population while just making our lives more chaotic. So upwing is upbeat as opposed to downwing, that's a downer. Is the term inspired by avionics or technology? It comes from politics. Left Instead of okay. left versus right, you go up versus down. So it's like either we're taking off or, or we're coming down. We're, we're, we're either going, we're going to the heavens or we're just stuck looking at the dirt. Right, yeah. right. And again, this resonates with me because, you know, as a eighth grader, I read the famous book, The Population Bomb, that uh, was written yeah. by Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich, who was a major public intellectual at the time. He was on the Johnny Carson show, you know, again and again. And his book predicted that overpopulation would be so bad that that tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people were going to die soon, like in the 1970s. And that we needed to organize our policy around this idea that we were completely running out of out of space on, on planet Earth. Would would you say that's kind of the ultimate expression of, of what of this downwing worldview? 
you know, it, it really is. That, that is a, a very famous example of sort of downwing thinking, which is unfortunately very prevalent in the environmental uh, movement back then, which is we're using up the earth. There's too many, you know, ravenous humans. It was, a, it was essentially kind of an anti-technology, anti-capitalist worldview, which, you know, was late, really seeped into what the kind of uh, our, our popular culture uh, into Hollywood. But my, my point is that it's not uncommon. In fact, it's, it happens all the time, whereas countries get richer, they begin to focus on the downsides of economic growth. So from that perspective, we were always going to have uh, people getting together and saying, hey, we need to think about these trade-offs and problems, and maybe the air is too dirty. But I don't think we had to have one which then said, oh, no, let's not use technology to solve these problems. We need to go back. We need to retreat. Uh, this Our entire system is corrupt. Capitalism only make it worse. I don't think we need to have that kind of environmental movement, but that's what we got, and that's to a great extent, I think, what we still have. Uh, and again, one whose, whose belief system is thoroughly reflected in our popular culture. So it's really an, an unholy combination. So we've been talking about The Population Bomb, a best-selling book that came out more than 50 years ago and predicted that the world would see mass starvation as the population increased. Population did go up, but instead of mass starvation, we've seen public health improving. Yet for a long time, that book was a bestseller, and we've also seen a downwing view of the world that Population Bomb typified prevailing in many Hollywood films, including science fiction. In what ways? It's really hard to come up with a any sort of lengthy list of films that aren't extraordinarily cautionary about, about technology, about the kind of uh, future we were likely to have. It matters. It matters that when we have a big breakthrough in AI, that almost every media story refers to the Terminator as like the cultural touchstone uh, of what of what goes on. Now, if you wanted to have a positive one, it'd be it'd probably be difficult because we just have not been generating this. And there are certainly science fiction writers who have said the same thing. So we went immediately from. Just use the example of 2001, A Space Odyssey, I think 1968, which showed humanity utterly in control of the Earth. We were a spacefaring, a spacefaring society. To not so long later, a movie like Soylent Green, which showed everything that could go wrong, <laughs> did go wrong, overpopulation, chaos, urban decay. Cannibalism. Cannibal <laughs> cannibalism. So it was, a, it was a pretty quick shift, really. That is what we've ended up. We've ended up with different versions sort of uh, decade after decade. And I just don't see how we can move forward and take risks that we need to solve problems if that is the only image we're sort of, you know, marinating in. Well, let, let's talk about policy a mm -hmm. little bit and how the, this kind of thinking uh, influences policy. You mentioned the environmental movement. You know, the early 70s was an era, a great revolution in environmental policy. We had the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. These laws did an enormous amount to, to clean up our air and water. All the major air pollutants came down by something like 80% since then. But there were some aspects of that that revolution that went too far or weren't quite handled right. And, and you document the way that 
um, some of these innovations, especially the National Environmental Policy Act, have served to stymie growth and sometimes even stymie solutions to environmental problems. Walk us through that. Cleaner air is pro-growth. Not, not, kids not uh, exposed to lead is pro-growth. Not being able to build a, a transmission line, a, uh, a nuclear reactor, a highway, a bridge, a high-speed rail line on any sort of budget or realistic timeline and having to fill out five years and $500 million and you know 50,000 pages of not to solve a problem, but merely create a review of the possible problems, that is not pro-growth. And it was quite obvious, even by the, mid, uh, the mid-1970s, that a lot of the environmental regulation not really cleaning up the environment, just made it hard to do much of anything in this country. You had White House economists by 1980 who were began to you know, see the economic slowdown, the productivity slowdown, thinking about the explosion of environmental regulation uh, as part of the problem. Um, so not much has been done about that, unfortunately. You know, some of my, some of my friends on the left with grand ideas about a green energy transition have suddenly discovered that they're not gonna be able to build a transmission line or a field of solar panels under any kind of realistic timeline. Our guest is scholar, journalist, and author, Jim Pathakoukas, and our podcast is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim, and as we mentioned, this week marks our 400th podcast. Kind of incredible that we've kept it together, and we're still friends. Yeah. After eight and a half years of being together, we also still have the same wonderful producer, Miranda Schaefer. Yeah, so a special shout out to Miranda for all her great work and utter reliability. What people may not realize is one of the reasons we bring this podcast in at a nice, efficient 30 minutes is that Miranda and and you together, Richard, do a lot of work helping boil it down, making sure it's focused, taking out extraneous meandering comments that I might provide, and and uh, really making it clip along and editing and producing it to such a high standard. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And now more of our interview with Jim Pathakoukas. There's nothing inherently conservative or liberal about gloom or despair. 
concerning the future. Many on the left are, are deeply disturbed by what they call the forthcoming climate catastrophe. There are many warnings about that. But on the right, many turn to the deep pessimism and populism of Donald Trump and, and make America great is really a backwards thinking ideology. You call your book the conservative futurists. Um, why conservative? I really like freedom. And I think having personal freedom, political freedom, and economic freedom is a grand inheritance that we enjoy today. And so there's, to me, there's nothing more conservative than inheriting something, looking at it and trying to make it better, and then passing it on to the future, to future generations. So that is my concern. It's one steeped in uh, in a market economy, a belief in liberal democracy, that those are powerful foundations to build uh, a, better, a, be a better tomorrow. It's about creating an environment that is hospitable to growth and risk-taking. And we'll see what we all together, by our decisions, create. And I have enough confidence in people that it'll probably be pretty good and solve some problems. So it is not about central planning. It, it, it's, 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 it's about like getting the most out of all of us, essentially. Jim, I, I call myself a liberal, and I think I agree with about 75 or 80 percent of what you've just said. So <laughs> semantics. Well, let's talk about where the rubber meets the road. What are some specific policy changes we can do to to make some of these things possible? Uh, for example, you say we should double all forms of R&D uh, in the American economy. I, I think, boy, I really think that's a big one. I, I think that... It's also something that, that you can get a lot of people on the left and right to agree on, which is it's one of the jobs of government to, to, to spend money on science research. Like, I'm not personally bothered that with some of these, like, you know, startup commercial fusion companies or deep geothermal mining companies, that they're getting some funding broadly from the Department of Energy. But I think that is a proper role of government. So I, I would take like government's part of national R&D spending back to back to where it was uh, during the space race, which is about 2% of GDP. It's about 0. 0.6, 0.7% now. So that would mean tripling federal government spending on research and development and, and reversing spending cuts. I think that has played a role. That has played a role in the slowdown of productivity growth. Every bit as important as the kind of environmental regulation, some of which I would absolutely get rid of. I think I would try to reform some of these things like NEPA. So, so just, just, just to jump in, NEPA is that National mm -hmm. Environmental Policy Act that I mentioned, and that's the act that requires people to write these environmental impact statements yeah. that, as you said, started out being 10 or 20 pages, and today they're like 600 pages. Right, right, yeah. Now they're like multi-volume, you, know, uh, you know, war and peace uh, kind of thing. So there were some efforts in the Trump administration to put some limits. I think it's something that has absolutely outlived its usefulness. Going back to more government spending on R&D projects, critics have said that would involve a lot of waste. Do you agree that this huge new spending is, is a risk worth taking? There will be dead ends. There will be failures. There will also be things that look like they were one in a hundred shots that have paid off. Any venture capitalist knows that you don't create a portfolio and expect all of these things to hit. But when something does hit, it really does make up 
for a lot of losses. I mean, what is, I mean, what is the economic potential of these AI, generative AI, large language models? Pretty massive. What is the potential for creating an orbital economy, which now seems viable compared to these reusable rockets, which people were scoffing at the entire time? There will be failures. Failure is part of taking any risk. It's part of a capitalist economy. And if you're not seeing failures, then you're probably not taking big enough, you know, big enough risk or taking a big enough swing at the plate. And it's not a bad way at all uh, to spend taxpayer money on trying to create cures and approaches and it's some of our biggest problems. Another way is to form private-public partnerships. Uh, you know, that's what we saw with NASA's partnership with SpaceX, which has really transformed their ability to launch cargo and astronauts into orbit affordably. And we also saw that with the Operation Warp Speed, right. which brought uh, the vaccines to market so much more quickly than, than almost anybody would have dreamed possible. Talk to us a little bit about these public-private partnerships. How do they, maybe in a way, they leverage the best of what government and, and private enterprise can do? You, ideally, you want like kind of the bluer sky things done by government and then more and more private sector involvement, the more it comes to something that's an actual product and thing we, and thing we can use here in the real world. What we saw, and I think we saw with Apollo, we saw with Operation Warp Speed, that the, when there is kind of a, a clear goal, and especially if sort of time is of the essence, that is when you really probably want to see more uh, government involvement. So I don't think we should take an absolutist stance that the only thing government should do is the most purely theoretical kinds uh, of research. You know, when you have everything clicking together, government, the private sector, we can rapidly solve big problems. Jim, talk about artificial intelligence, because that's potentially a source of, of huge advances, but the coverage of it in, in the media and also the reaction to it from our politicians is very much how threatening AI can be. Is the current view of it distorted and wrong? It is such a unfortunately similar case, what we saw with nuclear energy, where the narrative ended up being driven by people who were uh, either uh, you know against economic growth, had very little understanding of the technology involved, and we ended up basically putting a pretty important sector of our economy into stasis where it remains ever since. And you're seeing many of the similar arguments happen today where you have people who either want to slow down or regulate the technology because they already have the technology, like some of these big companies, along with the people who who either just feared for it because they worry it's going to kill us all, or they worry that this is, and this is, this is unbelievable, where you have some environmentalists saying, listen, maybe AI can solve some problems, but you know, it uses a lot of energy. So maybe we really can't have it. Uh, so people have their various reasons, but they're, but they're just variants of reasons we've seen in the past. And my whole life, I have, been, I have lived during what I call the great downshift. Some people call it like the long stagnation. And finally, I see like this cluster of technologies, AI for sure, space uh, and biotech, nuclear fission, maybe nuclear fusion, deep, you know, advances in solar, deep geothermal, 
that might come together and begin to kind of create the world that as a kid I thought was, you know, just over the horizon. Well, it seemed to be a little further over the horizon than I imagine, but maybe we were starting to see a glimpse. I mean, I really don't want to repeat the same mistakes of the past half century. Well, well this goes to a deeper point, which is, do you believe that pessimism is destructive? Is, is pessimism a disease that, that hinders a lot of progress? I, I, I think we've lived through a fairly long example uh, that that's the case. Normally, we end our podcast by asking our guests if they feel optimistic. Jimmy, I don't think that's necessary in your case. You, you, you've, get, you've made a, uh, a strong argument for optimism. But give us a sense of your timetable. I mean, you mentioned that a lot of really promising technologies seem to be coming together right now. So do you think these changes are, are possible in the near term? I mean, where do you see us as a society in 10, uh, 15 years? I think, you know, great tech breakthroughs often take a while for people to figure out how to use them. And so they kind of diffuse throughout the economy. So it could be that at least initially, for instance, AI, you might not see a huge impact uh, on growth. But I think if it's as powerful a technology as we think it is, and we don't make the kinds of mistakes that slow it down, I think you can have a fairly sizable increase in economic growth over the next 10 to 15 years. I'm talking, and really, I'm, I, I'm talking about this one sort of narrow application of the technology. There are certainly folks who think that sort of AI machine learning more broadly will have big economic impacts. I think that's possible. I think then when you put them with all these other technologies, also in the way that AI can help other technologies by making scientists and technologists, researchers more efficient, I think there's tremendous possibility. Now listen, uh, if you go by past results, it's going to be more of the same. That's always the smart way to bet, I guess, is that tomorrow will be the same as today, but it doesn't have to be. James Pathakukas, thanks very much. Thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you. That was Jim Pathakukas, author of The Conservative Futurist. And now, Richard, we're on to our recommendation phase of the show, and I think you're up this week. I am recommending a practice, um, a discipline, a regular spiritual practice, whether it's a prayer, a meditation, or a yoga practice, so not a product this week, um, I think that a daily or weekly spiritual discipline that involves some form of gratitude or giving or thinking of the inner self can really help. I think too often we're unkind to each other because we're unforgiving of ourselves, Organized religion is one way to practice spiritual discipline and care of community. And I believe, and and you may not agree with me, but I think that that there is a link between the decline in attendance at at churches and other places of worship and a rise in incivility. But whatever your leanings, whether you're atheist or agnostic or have firm beliefs— There are many ways to practice spiritual discipline. Whatever speaks to you, it's it's helped me over the years quite a bit. 
Well, you know, it's funny. I agree with that, even though I don't really practice it. <laughs> so, but uh, you know, I, I see in these in these times that we're in, I, people are trying to find meaning sometimes in their opposition to other people. And I think anything that encourages us to be a little more humble, a little more reflective, a little more oriented towards community is a good thing. And coming up next, our our conversation about the interview we just had with Jim Pethokoukas. Jim, you you invited him on the show. Yeah, uh, tell us well, what you I, were looking for. Well, I just really like this book, and uh, and partly because you know I'm one of those kids who grew up reading Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinlein and and Ray Bradbury and and, and so many others, and not because they're great literature, but because they're great thought experiments. If we change this about our world, what would happen? Or, you know, what kind of worlds might we have? And I think that there's something really useful in that kind of fiction. And what is also useful is a belief that science and enterprise can help solve problems, including climate change. So I love how, how, how Jim lays out some of the, uh, the ways that those cultural attitudes, that sense of belief in the promise of the future and, and the appropriate harnessing of technology for good, for good ends, those beliefs have an impact on the culture and they, they do bear fruit. And if we can revive some of that spirit, uh, I, I think that would, be, uh, that would be good for our country and good for the world. I agree. And I got it from both gyms, this, this <laughs> message on this show. So yeah. it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And Richard, congrats on 400 episodes. This podcast was your idea. You came to me, well, got almost nine years ago now to, to discuss the idea. And boy, what a great ride it's been. I'm looking forward to many more shows. And I've got to tell listeners, you kind of invited yourself to be the co-host. <laughs> you don't remember? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you got so enthusiastic. It's like, how can I say no? We have to do it together. <laughs> I don't remember that at all, to be honest with you. <laughs> Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and thank you very much for, uh, for being along on the ride. The show is produced by Davies Content. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.